Hello and welcome to these audio recordings from Project Echo, Westwick PHN Hub, COVID-19 Pandemic Response Echo Network Series. Series 3, Session 6, and uh, it's Thursday the 12th of November. Welcome back to this week's session where we will continue our conversations about getting back to business as COVID usual. This is part two, and it's NADOT week. And so I learned a new phrase this week. I don't know if uh, Deb will confirm that this is actually, uh, you know, infectious diseases, epidemiological term, but it's called the donut cycle. It's a phenomenon of 14 consecutive days of donuts or zero cases. And, you know, yesterday we hit 12 and I'm sure someone will announce during this meeting whether we've hit 13. Uh, so that's pretty cool because at 14, I'm keen to hear what Deb says 14 days means, but being a cycle of the virus, I'm sure it's uh, significant. So while it's a comical symbol, it brings a welcome pause and a reprieve amidst a year of massive disruption and change of fires, floods and plague. And what a great week and opportunity to pause and reflect upon something that is timeless, something that always was and always will be, the connection of Australia's First Nations people to land and country, the theme of this year's NAIDOC week. So this morning we'll bring together these themes of getting back to business as COVID usual with the business of advancing the strategy of closing the gap on health and equity for Aboriginal people. So what can we learn from a people who maintain the world's longest continuous connections to country and culture, a group who've experienced disruptions time and time again and fought to maintain their health physically, socially, emotionally and culturally, and who have fought to maintain the well-being of their community? What is NAIDOC Week all about and how can we engage in a respectful dialogue about its meaning for all of us as proud Australians? Why is it important to explore the impact of colonialisation and social determinants of poor health outcomes, such as racism and discrimination? And what can we learn about culture and its role as a determinant of health, of positive health and wellbeing? Finally, what role might we play within our communities and with our health services to bridge the gap of health inequality for Aboriginal people and communities? So here's some of the questions that we'll be seeking answers from this morning. Uh, and uh, before we get onto those uh, discussions, I'd like to introduce Adam Muir, Aboriginal Project Officer for Westwick PHN, to begin with the acknowledgement to country. And I wish to pay my respects to the traditional custodians of the lands from which we're all zooming in from this morning. Thank you, Adam. Uh, my name's Adam. I'm the uh, Aboriginal uh Aboriginal Health Project Officer for the Bowen Health and the Westwick PHN. Uh, my mob on dad's side are the Yorta Yorta and Tanarong people from Miranda Chuka and uh, Seymour Way, and mum's mob are the uh, Lister clan from Wales in the UK. And I live here on Wotherong country and have done in, in Geelong uh, all my life. So I'll just do the acknowledgement of country. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians of the lands and waterways from which we are zooming in from today. The Wadawarang, the Gulajan, the Garabanud, the Kirawarang, Guntajamara, the Jabarang, the Wachabalak, Jajadawarang, Jadwajali, Wagaya, Jadwa and Japogalk and the Wurundjeri peoples. We recognise their diversity, resilience and the ongoing place that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people hold in our communities. We pay our respects to the elders, both past and present, and commit to working together in the spirit of mutual understanding, respect and reconciliation. And I wish to extend that respect to any Aboriginal people connecting in today, including myself. So our agenda this morning, <clears throat> we are going to start with our update by Kate Graham for Health Pathways. Deb Freeman will bring us our infectious diseases update. And uh, and then Adam will present a piece of on NAIDOC week, its meaning and a set an agenda for change. At that point, we'll have a chance to yarn it up. And then we'll finish up with Rowena Cliff, CEO of Westwick PHN, to provide us an update. Uh, we won't have our rapid five 
infectious diseases Q&A at the end. Deb's got to head off and take her year 12 to an exam. How exciting. What a time for those guys. So our learning outcomes, of course, and you know these, this is really to engage in a a community of practice, a discussion of putting principles into practice in real world settings. And uh, of course, RACGP and ACRAM accredited. All right, with that, I'm going to hand over to you, Kate Graham. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Um, Thankfully, not too much to update from our Health Pathways perspective this week in terms of COVID. Um, We've got some new infection control guidelines. Um, So it's worthwhile familiarising yourself with them, um, just with any of the new updates that they involve. Um, The other page that we have that's brand new this week um, is thunderstorm asthma, which hopefully not too many of you will have been impacted from yesterday but thunderstorm asthma season will continue on for a little while. So um, that page has a lot of stuff about practice preparation um, and how to make sure that you're actually ready in terms of triaging patients, uh, making sure all your stock is ready um, and just being aware in advance. Um, And sort of that's something that we really want to be um, promoting heavily as we lead into summer season where we typically have a lot more emergencies um, evolve. Um, So we want to really flag the preparation, GP practice preparation for disaster pages. Um, While we don't want to go straight from one disaster into another, um, it's worthwhile thinking about how your practice is going to be ready um, in the event of a flood, um, what things you can have ready in advance. Um, And there's a lot of health pathways resources there and available. The other thing that I want to reinforce for people is looking back at the practice preparation page um, for COVID, because although we are going back to a COVID normal, I think that our COVID normal may involve sort of putting out little spot fires here and there for time to come. um, And we can't sort of rule out the event that, um, you know, over summer, we may get somebody in from somewhere that brings COVID into one of our communities. And over this summer period, we may have less staff within our own practices. Um, we have, we may have more overwhelm of our practices due to people coming into our communities um, compared to normal. Um, and our health systems overall may have less casual staff availability as everyone takes some well-earned leave. So that's about all from me this week, but also, and always importantly, we have a specific chapter in Health Pathways about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health and the very, very important um, health mechanisms that we have available to make sure that you as part of the primary health network and the primary care environment are part of closing the gap. So thank you and I'll hand back to you, Bianca. Thanks very much, Kate. Okay, over to you, Deb. Thanks, Bianca. Good morning, everybody. Um, So I just wanted to talk about, there's not a lot to say about COVID, so I thought we'd talk just a little bit about rapid testing, the vaccine, and the impact on First Nations people, just as given that it's NADOC week. So with regard to the vaccine, most people would have heard the news that Pfizer put out a press release about some of the results of their Phase 3 trial. Um, One of the things to say is that the Pfizer vaccine is one of many different vaccines that are in um, testing stages right now, and it's one of four possible vaccines that's being considered by Australia. The vaccine targets one of the spike proteins on the outside of the virus, and the relevance to that 
is that you might have heard that recently they found a population of minks in Denmark that had a wild type unusual strain of SARS-CoV-2. And the important thing about that is that um, the mink version of SARS-CoV-2 has got a different um, spike protein. So what that could potentially mean is that you might be vaccinated, but you might be susceptible to a strain that might have arisen from minks. So I think that was the that's the great concern about the minks, and that's the reason that all the poor minks are being culled. So that's just a, a bit of background. So unfortunately, the press release gives very few details. What we do know is that people require two doses um, about three weeks apart, but their follow-up is reasonably short so far on 43,000 participants. What they showed is that it was 90% effective at preventing and reducing the severity of COVID-19. It does not prevent people getting infected with SARS-CoV-2, but it prevents the more severe illness that people might get. And that's not dissimilar to what happens with flu, where the vaccine reduces the severity of infection, but that doesn't necessarily prevent you from becoming infected. Unfortunately, this is information that's not been peer-reviewed, peer not been published in a journal, it's just a press release. One of the things that we also know is that the, the vaccine needs to be stored at something like minus 70 to 90, minus 80 degrees Celsius. This, is, this poses some logistical challenges um, for that sort of cold chain um, storage, which would have to be um, overcome. Um, the other vaccine trial that people had heard about earlier was the Oxford trial. That's now resumed after some initial side effects. And you might have heard that there was an episode of what sounded like transverse myelitis. Um, the, I guess the other important thing to note, what, what don't we know? We don't know the duration of immunity for a vaccine. So you might give somebody two doses, but how long does it last? One news report said possibly five years, but we don't actually know. We don't know what the impact is on different age groups. And generally when they do these sorts of phase three trials, it's usually on people who are youngish, who don't have a lot of comorbidities. So how does it fare on very young children? How does it fare in the elderly? How does it fare in people that have a lot of comorbid illness? And what we also don't know is there have been discussions about how many millions and billions of doses could be produced over a certain time period, but it's yet to be seen exactly the amount that can be produced. Australia's ordered 10 million doses. That would be enough for 5 million people. The priority groups would likely be the elderly, the immunosuppressed, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, and probably healthcare workers. But if you do the maths, there's actually more than 5 million of that group. So lots of questions that we don't know the answers to in that space. So I think, however, that, you know, we have gotten a long way with regard to the vaccine this year. So I think we're going to hear more in the next little bit. Um, I just wanted to quickly um, talk about rapid tests. A lot of people do ask about rapid tests for COVID-19. So the rapid tests that are available are basically gene expert tests. So they're molecular tests, but they're done rapidly kind of not that dissimilar to a pregnancy test, as in you do the swab, you mix it with some reagent, you wait, and then you get a result. It's a little bit longer than a pregnancy test. The gene expert is the thing that we use to um, rapidly diagnose tuberculosis um, when we've got, you know, sputum. So <clears throat> um, there's some of these different rapid tests, tests for 
not only SARS-CoV-2, but also for influenza and RSV, making it particularly useful because you can do a whole panel of different viruses, which I think is really important, especially in emergency departments. The there are a couple of different varieties and they take somewhere between about 30 minutes to 60 minutes. The problem with a lot of these tests is that you can only do a small number of samples at any one time. So it's not a platform in which you could put a thousand samples like there is in the standard um, testing done in laboratories. So, so this is for a small number of um, people at any one time. Um, the sensitivity of the test is excellent, so there's no concerns there. And what it's most suitable for is very high-risk patients where you really need an urgent results that's going to make a difference. So some of the things might be a very sick person that comes into the emergency department. It might be a preoperative patient that came in that had symptoms where you really want to know before you operate on them. Or potentially in a regional centre where you know that you, especially now that we've got zero cases for 12 days, if you had somebody where you were really suspicious that it could be COVID and you know that the impact that's going to have if somebody announced a new case in Colac, Shepparton or wherever, the using that rapid test would be important for, for the person um, with the symptoms. So, it's, so just to clarify, this is still a molecular test um, and it's looking for genetic material. That is in contrast to some of the tests that are being marketed, which are basically rapid antigen tests, and that they are not the ones that are endorsed for use within Victoria or Australia. So that's a completely different test. There's also rapid antibody tests, which are also not endorsed for usual utility. Um, so I just wanted to make that part clear. And then I just wanted to quickly... Um, just in recognition of um, NADOC week, just talk a little bit. There's, there's a really good editorial in the Medical Journal of Australia in August talking about First Nations people and their susceptibility to COVID-19 and also describes the process within Australia which began in, I think, late February or March in setting up a special advisory group for Indigenous people, which I think has been a remarkable success story in preventing the impact of COVID-19 in Indigenous populations. And that just sort of describes what they've done um, to try and prevent COVID-19 infection. Um, and that's all I've got for you today. Thank you. Um, we'll keep you on the line, Deb, because I've got a couple of minutes. There's just a couple of questions in the chat. And if you want to sneak any in, please do. It asks, if a person can still get COVID after the vaccine, albeit less severe, does this result in it being less contagious also? Nobody knows. And the other thing that people don't know is, you know how in some situations where somebody's vaccinated, we know that they can excrete that virus, like in their stool and other things, and then potentially be contagious to other people that they live with who might be immunosuppressed. We don't know that about this vaccine yet. And so we don't actually know what, how contagious somebody would be. But one thing that I will say, if you just liken it to other viral illnesses, if somebody developed influenza, even though they were flu vaccinated, and you ask the question, would they still be contagious? The answer would be yes. If somebody developed chickenpox after being vaccinated for varicella, would they be contagious? The answer is they still would be. So, so my impression is that they would be, but I don't have that hard data to back it up. Okay, I've got another question about rapid testing for COVID. Do you see a time when we have a setup in which en masse rapid testing is possible? So, so I guess there could be um, 
an increase in the availability of those platforms. So the other thing to say is that the one that I was referring to that does, uh, it does a whole panel of different viruses, um, that's available in some of the big laboratories. So they've got it there for their kind of area just for rapid testing. But, and the Department of Health has some of them that they can send out if, if needed. So in Shepparton, they sent out one of the kind of um, gene expert tests so that, and it doesn't require much training by the person who's doing it. So they set somebody up and that person just did like 200 tests, albeit only a few at a time, but managed to do it. The big role for it now, so the one that we've got in Geelong is in the emergency department. Um, there's not that many in Australia right now in emergency departments, but we've got one. So do I see a time? I think we're going to see increased availability. The question is, it's a big investment still. These, these, um, these things are quite expensive. So the question is, how much money do you invest in this sort of technology when you've got a vaccine starting and you've got all these questions about what's going to make the biggest impact to this disease? Um, so I think that there will be increased availability and there may be platforms that can handle more samples at any one time. I think the other thing is that all of the labs that are doing COVID testing have increased their efficiency a lot since the beginning of this and most of them are getting sort of results in 24 hours now. So one of the questions would be, you know, what are we aiming for here? Are we aiming so that everybody can get a result in 30 to 60 minutes? That may be kind of a little unrealistic at this point, but potentially in the future. Okay, thanks, Deb. And just a quick one, uh, UFS dispensaries, is rapid testing available in Ballarat? Wondering about year 12s with exams happening. Uh, so thank you for mentioning. So they don't have that specific platform in Ballarat but it could be obtained if it was necessary. But what we did put into place, um, we had some meetings a couple of weeks ago and we put into place um, that all year 12 students are priority one. Previously, general people would be priority three or four for testing and results. So we've made year 12 students who are doing exams priority one for testing. So any centre that they go to is aware of that and they should get their results as you know, as quickly as possible. The other thing that you could do in that situation is communicate with your lab about exactly what time you might be getting results and perhaps you can even... So, for example, if, if a test was being done in the afternoon, the most likely thing is that they would have results later that night and potentially you might be able to get those results back. But it does take a little bit of chasing around when you try and um, go do things that go outside of the ordinary method for getting results back, which is normally by text message or something like that. So, um, but yeah, so they're priority one for testing, but the, it's not using gene expert. And sorry, Rachel is telling me that they do have a gene expert in Ballarat. Sorry, didn't know that. Thank, Thank you, Rachel. Right. Rachel, um, pop in the chat where it is. And listen, I'm going to hold you for one more. I know we're running at time, so this is the last one we'll take. But just because Deb has to head off, can you talk about formal surveillance plan now that's either um, in place or going ahead um, and about the sewage testing or other, other strategies for formal surveillance? So some of the strategies, there is, um, there will be ongoing sewage testing. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's very funny, I tried to find out exactly where the next tests would be and what I was told was that we can, we're not going to tell you that. So oh. I can't tell you exactly. That, and it's supposed to be kind of random and fun, just like breath testing. So, you know, 
it's a it's a normal bodily function to which we all contribute and testing will be coming to an area near you soon so one thing but remember that's a very very rough tool and why is it a rough tool we know that virus is excreted in stool sometimes for up to three months after you have an illness we know enterovirus in kids there's data for up to 90 days or longer. And the same can happen with other viral pathogens. So what does it mean? It means that somebody took a crap that went to a particular sewage plant within the last three months. I personally, I think it's a very sort of rough tool that says that, guess what, we've had some COVID here, but I don't think it gives you any more specifics than that. The other surveillance testing is in particular, so Preoperative testing, routine preoperative testing will go away when we're in this very good phase and wouldn't come back again unless we had an escalating number of cases. The other parts of surveillance is predominantly in um, healthcare workers. So what's being done now is because there's no cases, there's no COVID ward nurses, but if we did have some cases, then it would go back to being staff that are working in high-risk areas, so it might be emergency department and COVID wards. But right now what's being done is every two weeks, 100% of aged care staff within Metro Melbourne are being tested and within regional Victoria it's every four weeks, so it's between a two and four weeks. That's going to be downgraded a little bit and we just met the other day to try and decide on exactly how frequently it would be when we've kind of got very, very low levels of infection. That's probably going to be revised a little bit, but it will it'll basically be focusing on healthcare workers. Now, there doesn't, there's not, it's not important to start screening um, aged care residents because I think what we need to do is look for the people that introduce it to aged care residents, which is aged care staff. So that'll be where it starts, which is aged care staff. That's the major kind of surveillance um, that I'm aware of now. And if there's any other things, I'll be able to update you in the coming weeks. Thank you very much, Deb. Okay, great. Thank you. So that's our COVID update and good luck to the year 12s. Absolutely. All right, um, Adam, I'm going to hand over to you. Thank you for your um, presentation this morning. Uh, well, I'll give um, just a bit of an overview of uh, uh, the history of, of NADOC just so to sort of explain it to people who might not know exactly where it came from and why it continues to to exist and what its purpose is and you know what it seeks to achieve and so forth and then we can pull up the uh, the slides and uh, you know go through the sort of discussion points and have a bit of a yarn about uh, any questions people might have and um, hope we can point them to some interesting um, reading and so forth through, uh, around that as it relates to um, health plans and so forth. So uh, yeah, I'll just let me just go through that. So before the before the 1920s, Aboriginal rights groups boycotted Australia Day, uh, which was till 26th of January, in protest against the status and treatment of Indigenous Australians. And by the 1920s, they were increasingly aware that the broader Australian public were largely ignorant of boycotts. Uh, if the movement were to make progress, it would need to be active. Uh, several organisations emerged uh, to fill this role, particularly the uh, Australian Aborigines Progression, Progressive uh, Association in 1924 and the Australian uh, Aborigines League in 1932. Their efforts were largely overlooked and due to police harassment, um, the, the AAPA um, abandoned their work in 1927. In 1935, William Cooper, Yorta Yorta Man, uh, 
founder of the Aborigines Advancement League, uh, drafted a petition to send to King George V, asking for special Aboriginal electorates in federal parliament. The Australian government believed that the petition fell outside its constitutional responsibilities. In 1938, on Australia Day, um, protesters marched through the streets of Sydney, followed by a congress attended by over a thousand people, one of the first major civil rights gatherings in the world. It was known as the Day of Mourning. Following the Congress, a deputation led by William Cooper presented Prime Minister Joseph Lyons with a proposed national policy for Aboriginal people. This was again rejected because the government did not hold constitutional powers in relation to Aboriginal people. After the day of mourning, there was a growing feeling that it should be a regular event. And in 1939, William Cooper wrote to the National Missionary Council of Australia to seek their assistance in supporting and promoting an annual event. And from 1940 until 1955, the Day of Mourning was held annually on the Sunday before Australia Day and was known as Aborigines Day. In 55, Aborigines Day was shifted to the first Sunday in July after it was decided the day should become not simply a protest day, but also a celebration of Aboriginal culture. Major Aboriginal organisations, state and federal governments, and a number of church groups all supported the formation of NADOC, which was N-A-D-O-C, the National Aborigines Day Observance Committee. At the same time, the second Sunday in July became a day of remembrance for Aboriginal people and their heritage. In 1972, the Department of Aboriginal Affairs was formed as a major outcome of the 1967 re referendum. And in 74, the NADOC committee, NADOC committee, was composed entirely of Aboriginal members for the first time. The following year, it was decided that the event should cover a week from the first Sunday to the second Sunday in July. Uh, in 1984, NADOC asked that National Aborigines Day be made a national public holiday to help celebrate and recognise the rich cultural history that makes Australia unique. While this has not happened, other groups have echoed that call. And between 1991 and present, with a growing awareness of the distinct cultural histories of Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders, NADOC was expanded to recognise Torres Strait Islander people. The committee became known as the National Aborigines and Islanders Day Observance Committee, or NADOC, with the I in it. This new name has become the title for the whole week, not just the day. Each year, a theme is chosen to reflect the important issues and events uh, for NADOC. And as we know, this year's uh, theme is always was, always will be. During the mid-90s, the Aborigines and Torres Strait Islander Commission, ATSIC, took over the management of NADOC until it was disbanded in 2004-2005. There were interim arrangements in 2005 and since then a national NADOC committee, um, until recently chaired by former Senator Aidan Ridgway, has made key decisions on national celebrations each year. The national committee has representatives from most states and territories. And so I, will, I will add to that that the, the part of what the National um, NADOC Committee does is um, also decide on which um, location will be the centre for national uh, activities each year. So it's not necessarily the same place all the time, but it's typically one of the capital cities in the various states and territories, which is given the national focus for that, for that year.
so that's just a bit of a yeah a bit of a history of NADOC for those who are you know unfamiliar with how it sort of came to be and where it's at now. Can I ask you, Adam, kind of to reflect upon, or if you don't mind sharing a bit about what what it means for yourself and and what the week's been like? Yeah, it's. I mean, what's today? Thursday. It's a. Uh, it's a bit of a whirlwind. Um, we um, attend. A, there's lots of different events happening because the, uh, lo- lots of uh, communities will do their own stuff, and so you've got the um, you've got the sort of national calendar of events. Each state will also have a sort of a state calendar events. And then various local communities will also have their own calendar of events. And often there's some similarities, but there will also be different. Some of the similar things that will happen is there's often a flag raising ceremony um, towards the front end of the week at at different places. Um, uh, This year, a lot of the events are understandably virtual, uh, not in person. So there's a lot of stuff happening on online, on Facebook and Zoom and other, you know, online platforms. Um, Wadawurrung Aboriginal Cooperative uh, did a flag raising, virtual flag raising ceremony on um, <clears throat> Monday this week, and which I, uh, I mean, I say attended. I, I watched, you know, from from my, my from the from work. I was at work at the time. Um, and they'll have, uh, you know, welcome to country and, and, um, possibly some, um, dancing, welcome, welcome dancing ceremony as well, possibly a smoking ceremony. It depends on whether they're able to do it outside or inside or, you know, different places do it different ways. Um, we, at, uh, at Bowen Health, we also, um, hosted, uh, uh, an annual event, which is part of Bowen Health's, um, reconciliation action plan to, um, host a, uh, NADOC week, uh, awards event, uh, acknowledging the work of, um, both, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, but also non-Indigenous staff of the hospital who have, uh, you know, contributed significantly to Aboriginal health outcomes um, within Bowen Health uh, throughout the year, and, and as a fu- as a function of the sort of deliverables within their reconciliation action plan. And so we we do that, and we did that this year, and this, this was the first time we had to, you know, we did it virtually, and so that was new. Um, definitely a new experience to try and um, put that on and, and um, have it run as hopefully as smoothly as it, as it does when we do it in person loses a little bit because you can't have, you know, you can't bring the tucker along and have a yarn and catch <laughs> up with people and, you know, do all that stuff. So it's, um, you, you know, we need to invent smell vision or something. I don't know. So people <laughs> smell the tucker when we're doing that through the, through the internet. Um, so that, so we, we do that. There's often um, – there'll also be a Vic State uh, – I think they're going to do a, a cabaret, um, but it'll be – again, it'll be a virtual cabaret. They'll be heading back to the old uh, stomping grounds in um, in Carlton uh, to host the event there that that, mem- that community can attend uh, virtually and have a bit of a, um, you know – have a bit of a catch up and a bit of a bit of a dance and a boogie and a celebration of uh, um, NADOC and and people's uh, you know achievements and successes throughout the year. Um, especially important in these times of COVID too to be able to catch up with people on occasions that aren't um, uh, that aren't funerals because what you need to understand for Aboriginal people is most of the time you're catching up with family it's at a funeral. 
which is uh, unfortunate, but that's that's the world. Rich. That's the world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that's the world Aboriginal people live in. You often, um, you know, I've lost track of how many times I've been pall- a pallbearer uh, at, at, at funerals, mm-hmm. and I, I have a, um, a a friend whose uh, heritage is um, Macedonian, and he he uh, we 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 often say that um, you know. Funerals are to uh, Aboriginal communities as um, engagement and weddings are to uh, Macedonian uh, communities, and so it's a um, it's it's an interesting phenomenon where, and and that's another thing why uh, Aboriginal people look very much forward to uh, opportunities that that occur during NADOC Week because it is a genuine opportunity to celebrate and catch up and be happy. Um, outside of the regular business that happens um, th- throughout the year, um, and so though, and it's also an opportunity to to attend various awards ceremonies to acknowledge um, various community members who have contributed in, in different ways to to the work of that's important to the community in different areas of endeavour, including health, um, throughout the year. So it's nice to see people get those awards and get those acknowledgements that they so richly deserve as well. It's also an opportunity to, um, you know, for non-Indigenous people to participate in those celebrations, um, uh, honouring the work of, you know, their their, their Aboriginal colleagues and friends, and um, uh, you know what what they do outside of their work or or, or with or within their work if they happen to work in Aboriginal organisations. So yeah, that's a, that's a, and it's a, it's a very um, for me, it's very important for me to use that time to try to catch up with family I haven't seen for a while, and also to I'm not I'm not a big networker per se, but it's important to develop networks um, with with people pr- uh, professionally as well. So you can, but it's nice to do so in a more casual, informal environment rather than a, a professional opportunity. It's more of a um, oh, you know, come let me introduce you to so and so, or you know, you catch up and talk about the work you're doing, and you make connections with the work. Similar work other people are doing, and and um, uh, either you know around town or even broader across the state and so forth. So I like to attend sort of local um, events, but I also like to participate in sort of statewide calendar of events as well because it's in you know, it's a really it's really good for the for the work that I do. But it's also good for me to to catch up with mob that I haven't seen who live in different places all around the state. Yeah, Adam. We um thank you. We um we won't present it this morning, but I hope we'll have the opportunity to do it again as part of our sessions next year, probably with the, the Aboriginal social emotional framework. And as you were speaking, then I don't know if this sits within the social and emo- Aboriginal social emotional framework that we um we discussed to anyone who came to our um, mini series, our Indigenous mini series um in the last series. Um, but one of the things that I was reflecting upon, as you were saying that uh, from the, I guess, the risk protective factor framework that I'm more familiar with is uh, we talk about racism and discrimination as a risk factor, a community risk factor that brings about poor health outcomes, mental health and spiritual health. But the protective factor that's almost the counter to that is the opportunity for people to have meaningful engagement and to be recognised and seen in the strengths and positive contribution they make. So as you're describing that, that significance and what it feels to have colleagues recognised and celebrated, you know, is actually, you know, scientifically, you know, spoken as a protective factor, you know, which to me is really compelling, this idea of why we should have 
a, a holiday and a, and a, at a time to respect and to acknowledge, um, you know, Indigenous um, culture and uh, our Aboriginal, um, you know, con- you know, workers and contributors. So um, that's kind of what I guess that kind of made me think about that. And 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 I guess some of the chat comments that are coming up as we reflect upon the gap of what we're currently experiencing is um you know we've got a footy holiday and we've got a horse race holiday but we don't have a holiday um to celebrate something that always was and always will be our um, continuous culture um in connection to country um so actually i feel a lot of shame personally about that um and uh, i wonder what other people's response was to says you know thank you for the history lesson adam and i hope that they're teaching uh this in schools this week and uh and other weeks as well says first nations health is too often seen through a deficit lens exactly that's right you know i mean i think that as part of the um strategies they talk about countering racism and discrimination but how to do that you know why not celebrate start with having a national holiday um and actually recognizing um contribution you know that that it's often easier to build protective factors than it is to counter risk but if if you actually build protective factors and this has been demonstrated in evidence and particularly in the youth realm but um you know if you actually build protective factors well you almost the risk factors can disappear um so we all up to all of us to tackle that so that concludes the panel presentation for this session we'll bring you any other snippets that we can but come along and join the discussion next week thank you very much okay i'm going to head over to you rowena uh to bring us a phn update thank you uh thank you bianca and i almost feel bad interrupting this wonderful discussion um i will acknowledge i'm on gundi jamara country so i'm out far west and i just want to acknowledge um adam um for your contribution today you can tell we have a great time with adam because he teaches us every single day um we are looking at our own rap and i think all of us need to think about our response to this. This is about us. Um, And NAIDOC Week is a celebration um, for Aboriginal people and um, I've been delighted to attend a few of those celebrations. So that's really important. And thinking about that deficit, I just want to let you know that um, we just got some immunisation results. So the March 2020 result for um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander immunisation rates for five years being fully immunised was 98.8%. So some really good stuff being done um, in this space. And so I think it's really important that we don't lose sight of the positive message. Um, Just quickly from a PHN point of view, uh, e-prescribing projects are coming your way. So I think that's a really important initiative. I also want to say that we'll be continuing on with um, Project um, ECHO and thanks, Bianca, into the new year. Keep coming back to us with topics that you really want to talk through because it's really important that we work with you about what you want to hear about. Um, I'm meeting with Barwon Health and all the other um, CEO groups across to talk about what are the priorities now and one of them is deferred care and I think deferred care really needs to start with a primary care response as much as a health service response but I think in conjunction we can do a really good response um, and we can look at how we really um, get people back looking at their health. We're just about to start some work on um, family violence and a primary care response so watch that space. We've also started a bit more on Head to Help, um, some of the advertising for our Head to Help site, both in um, Geelong and in Ballarat. And that number is 1800 595 212 if you need to um, refer someone. I just want to pick up on some of the summer preparedness. This is a bit of COVID, this is a bit of flood, this is a bit of fire. Um, And if people didn't know, Lawn is 100% accommodation booked out this week. So Melbourne is leaving Melbourne. 
and coming to our beautiful region. Um, and there's a lot of concern about places like um, Halls Gap, for instance, where Buja Buja is the only general practice in town. So we've got a lot of work to do to support some of our beautiful region in this. Um, and I've been invited to a meeting with the Commonwealth to talk about the COVID-19 vaccine. And I'll come back to you when I know more, but even just the storage is something that's already set off sort of how we're going to do this. Um, but we will do that in conjunction with other health services. So I think that's it from me. Um, oh, thank you so much. Fire. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Oh, and, um, and, uh, and thank you so much for that rapid update. Thank you so much for your time, Adam. And it's been an absolute pleasure for me personally to be part of uh, a virtual, um, you know, celebration of um, NADOC week and celebration of your culture. Uh, something I think we should all really be proud of. Really, this is the longest continuous culture in the world. And uh, I do think it's an absolute crime that we don't you know, we don't, uh, you know, have dedicated, uh, you know, funding to to and, and celebrations and national days. Um, but at the moment, we can lobby, we can all do our bit to make it a, a great week and uh, and ensure that we're um, being very culturally aware and inclusive in our health services and uh, in our, um, you know, day to day life. So go out there and um, and spread the joy, guys. Uh, have a great happy NADOC week. week, everybody. Happy NADOC get out there and get amongst it, mate. That's it. That's it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Adam. Next week, STI testing week. Rachel Cowan's going to join us. We'll be talking about STIs and, uh, you know, there's lots still to, very much to learn there. If you've got a case, ECHO works really well when we've got cases. So if you've got some antenatal syphilis results you want to share, if you've got um, a gono or a mycoplasma that's tricky to treat, please uh, get on the uh, evaluation. Let me know about it and I'll be in touch and um, we'll make for a fun session, fun and interactive session. Thanks so much. Have a great day, everyone. This series was brought to you by the West Vic PHN. I'm Bianca Forrester and I'm the GP facilitator for this series. I'd like to acknowledge the work of Gemma Misbach, Natalie Love, Fiona Quigley, Matt Dixon and Kate Graham for their work in coordination, support and contribution to this series. These audio catch-ups are produced by Gemma Misbach, myself and Jade Buller. Come along and join the discussions on Thursday mornings at 7.30am via Zoom. You can register on the West Vic PHN website by looking up Project Echo COVID-19. All sessions are RACGP and ACRAM accredited as a time-based activity and CPD certificates are available for non-GP participants. Thanks for listening and join us again next time.